Living with mental illness can be very lonely because the cognitive experience that I have with my mental illness is akin to having the most cynical um, and abusive person you've ever met sitting on your shoulder whispering terrible things into your ear. Welcome to Courage Stories, a podcast series where teammates share their stories on being courageous while embracing who they are and how they are allies for others. With your hosts, Louis Martirez and Rachel Wade. Thanks for joining me today, Louis. Thank you. I had a really great conversation with Heather Rule, mm. uh, talking about mental wellness and mental illness oh, and her journey with this. So I'm really looking forward to hearing the conversation and your thoughts on it. Great. I'm looking forward to, to hearing this. Let's dig in. Okay. Hi, Heather. Thanks for joining me today in the Strategic Coordination Studio in ATB Place. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. But before we sort of jump into things, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are as a person, who you are as far as ATB goes, and what flavor you're going to be bringing for us today? Well, thanks for having me, Rachel. My name is Heather Rule. I'm a solution architect now at ATB. I've been at ATB eight years. I started during the final phases of the core project as a contractor, and this, we like to say this is the longest four-month contract that I've ever <laughs> held, and I've been lucky enough to stay part of the ATB story and ATB journey since that time. Yeah, back in the Atria days, I think, is where, were you, were you in Atria ever? I spent a lot of time in Atria. Yeah. I've always been based in Edmonton, though I've spent enough time in Calgary that I'm um, sometimes mistaken for a Calgarian. Myself included. I thought we would be doing this in Calgary. So <laughs> that was funny to find out that way. What do you want to talk to us about today? Why are we sitting here? So my courage story is around my experience as a team member who lives with mental illness. And I'll distinguish that from mental health. We all have mental health, but some of us also live with mental illness being a diagnosed psychiatric disorder. And I am lucky enough to live with four of them. Where would you like to start as far as diving into that a little bit deeper? I grew up with mental illness. I was showing signs of clinical depression by the age of seven. By the age of 13, my family doctor wanted me referred to a child psychologist. I wasn't officially diagnosed until I was 18 years old. It took me another five or six years to get on to stable medication. And I'm very pleased that in the last six months, I finally found some help on the cognitive side as well. So it's a very, very long journey. Anyone who's ever known me at ATB has never known me as a person without a mental illness. This has been a large part of my story. And one of the reasons why ATB number 11 and being courageously yourself and an ally to others is so important to me is that I grew up in a family where this wasn't discussed. There's a history of mental illness in my family. It was not discussed. When my family doctor tried to refer me to help as a child, my parents looked right back at me and asked me, do you really need this? And so that's not the kind of story I want us to create at ATB for the team members here. It's not the kind of story I want our next generation to grow up with. And the way we become better allies for those of us who are struggling with mental illness is by normalizing that conversation, being open to sharing those experiences so that we don't have that long delay between showing signs of mental illness and actually getting help. For sure. And I know even from a mental health perspective, I know you've started this very wisely differentiating the two. 
But I know Tara Adams said something that's really stuck with me for a long time. And I think I even posted about this in the mental health action team. G plus was that everybody fakes mental health, but it's not that they're faking that they're not well. It's faking that they're okay. So I think that that you're right. It's bang on around having to have that conversation and normalizing and allowing people to talk about it. Can you backtrack a little bit then in that story around that space where this wasn't normalized, you weren't able to talk about it, you were still trying to figure out on how you get help. How did you navigate that on your own? With great, great difficulty. Tara says it's very true. I fake mental health all the time. It's one of those life skills that I learned because I wasn't able to get medical help when I was first struggling with mental illness. I learned how to mask it. And I learned how to mask it very, very well most of the time, but it takes an enormous burden to try and create experiences for others that aren't genuine to how you're feeling. So if I think back to how I actually became a person with a diagnosed mental illness, it really wasn't until I developed mental illness number four. So the four diagnoses I have, I alluded to clinical depression, I've also been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, with social phobia, and panic disorder. And it was panic disorder that finally brought everything to a head because while you're often able to fake the others, panic disorder is a very physically disruptive illness. Is that like along the lines of having panic attacks? Is that similar? Panic attacks is, is the way panic disorder manifests itself. A very healthy person may experience panic attacks in their lifetime. Those that live with panic disorder experience pervasive and frequent life disruptive um, panic attacks. Most people, when they first have a panic attack, actually mistake it for a heart attack. Mm. It's very common in emergency rooms to have to differentiate between the two because it feels like you are dying. How has that impacted you as a team member then, especially a team member who it sounds like has spent a lot of time not putting kind of your true self forward for what I would imagine are protective reasons, career reasons, um, reputational reasons. So how have you, like, what does that actually look like for you at work, trying to be sort of two people at once in order to cater to everyone else's expectations of, of what they see as quote unquote normal or acceptable? Living with mental illness can be very lonely because the cognitive experience that I have with my mental illness is akin to having the most cynical um, an abusive person you've ever met sitting on your shoulder whispering terrible things into your ear Aww. all day, every day. Yeah. And it sounds just about as awful as some of the lived experiences. And it's hard to actually separate lived experience when I don't have particularly high symptoms of mental illness with when those that I do, because most days I have to deal with it to some extent. It creates the experience of cognitive dissonance in many cases. So I'm lucky to have some really fantastic coworkers, and they'll often give me really wonderful, inclusive compliments and try and make me feel at home. The worst part of uh, my mental illness, the lived experience is kind of like, if you can imagine some of those really truly cold and terrible Alberta winter days when you're bundled up in all of your winter wear, heavy coats and scarves and mitts and toques, 
and you're going outside. And if you can imagine being outside and experiencing that like fierce chill in the air where it's almost painful in your skin, mm. and then looking around you, seeing people in shorts and t-shirt trying to tell you that, no, 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 it's, it's not cold, it's warm. Right, take those and layers off. they're trying to take those layers off of you. You know that there's something to it, but at the same time, it doesn't stop you from experiencing that horrible, biting, cold feeling. And that's kind of similar to the feeling of cognitive dissonance when you're hearing great things about yourself, but at the same time, you've lived with this horrible little person in your head for so long that you have a really hard time believing it. It becomes a very painful experience and painful lived experience even though everyone in the conversation, um, including you, is trying their absolute best to make it a warm and inclusive place. Yeah, that's an interesting space to talk about, I think, because we look at ATB number 11, and it's courageously be yourself and a true ally for each other. And so that is sort of, I feel like, the people in shorts and t-shirts saying, there's ATB 11, you can be yourself, just be a little bit courageous, just show up, and we're here to accept you. I've also heard a conference that I went to called Standing Together Conference, and there was one of the people in the audience that said they're kind of tired, actually, of hearing this word courage for people who are from the marginalized space because you're asking them to do the labor, which was just a bit of an aha moment for me. But what did you experience then when HB11 came out? And is that just more of those people trying to tell you to take the layers off when you're not ready? Is that there for you? Or how are you experiencing that? And does what I'm even saying make any sense? So it makes perfect sense. And I think of courage and being authentically yourself as a muscle that you need to use over and over and it gets stronger over time. If you're divorced from your own self-experience, that muscle is still weak and it's going to take time to become strong enough for you to really courageously show your whole self. And I think we need to be empathetic about where individual team members may be in their own personal journeys. But I think there's something very powerful in the story about ATB number 11. At its best, allyship looks like people standing beside those who come from a place of disadvantage one way or another to amplify their stories, to amplify their voices, to not speak for or Mm -hmm. on top of, but to repeat the message. While giving credit. While while (laughs) giving credit. To help those that may not be used to flexing that courage muscle get stronger at it. I think there's a hugely important role for allies in normalizing conversations about mental health and mental illness. We talk about true advocacy and allyship being things like nothing about us without us. The way that it becomes more problematic is when we're scared of that illness and we're scared of the whole mental health spectrum being a journey from like a high-performing, green, healthy space all the way to a red illness space and understanding that people at different times in their life will be at different places on that spectrum. And how do we not trivialize the experience of people that are in the red by only talking about, let's go back to the green, let's talk about the green, and I want to be in the green, and we can talk about wellness over and over. It's important to just pause for a tiny second and think about If you're not, and if it's a struggle for you, that conversation can be marginalizing in and of itself. So things that I've heard as a person who lives with mental illness, oh, you should just get more sleep. (laughs) 
forgetting that the yeah. reason I don't get more sleep is because of my illness, that it yeah. keeps me up, it'll wake me up in the middle of the night, and particularly when I most need it, when I'm in distress, it's hard. And I can sleep more than anybody else I know be, in just trying to stay in a healthy place. Right. So those messages, oh, just Oh, you should just, you should just get more sleep. Or why don't you just exercise more? Why don't you just drink more water? None of these are bad suggestions. They're all coming from a well-intentioned place and they're great wellness opportunities for all of us. And at the same time, we need to understand that quite often those wellness conversations have been used as a weapon to turn mental illness away from a journey that you're on where you will experience different aspects of that mental health spectrum and the to give people hope that there is a path back to wellness and realize that if that conversation isn't coming from a well-intentioned place, it can feel like another way of stigmatizing people that have mental health issues, putting that responsibility back on that. back on their shoulders. So yeah. it's a difficult conversation, but I think it's an important one. And there's so many great people here at ATB that are really trying to have an inclusive conversation with everyone. And it's why in framing this particular conversation, I didn't want to talk about mental health. I wanted to talk about mental illness. Yeah. Well, I mean, something that I'm hearing from you is that it's okay to sit in the red with someone for a little bit, like instead of racing them to green and to acknowledge that this is real and that it's not just so simple as, you know, doing some stretches or going for a jog. And I think that people don't like sitting in that space because it can feel really awkward whether it's situational or whether it's diagnosed. I mean, you hear a lot of times people will say, my child died, and I was shocked at the number of people that would maybe send me a text or a Facebook message, but never picked up the phone and much less actually came over. And when you talk to the people in that situation who just want to send a text or put a like or something or a sad face on Facebook, it's because they don't know what to say. They don't know what to say. It feels awkward. They don't want to say the wrong thing. So they just don't say anything. And I think that we have to learn that that's okay to not know exactly the right thing to say, but to not be there at all is worse. And if it's awkward for you, think about how painful it is for them. So what are your thoughts on that advice? And, and that's just sort of like lived experience for myself as far as what I've heard when I've heard people who have been struggling and I've been trying to be an ally and supportive. But where, what should people actually do in that space when you're in the red when it's either seems kind of obvious based on your behavior, or maybe you've even actually been so bold as to say so. The funny part about learning how to fake help is that sometimes you miss your own illness cues. So it's incredibly important, though I appreciate how difficult that conversation is. It's not a comfortable one, I think, for any of us to sit with someone and say, I've noticed that you've been coming in later than you usually do or you're quieter than you usually do or is everything okay do you need help but if you come at that from an authentic place and stop worrying about getting the words perfect because your intent will shine through your message greater than any perfect words ever will what do you do if you kind of you put yourself out there you wait into that conversation you hold your breath yeah you say that you've noticed something that you're worried about them whatever the words are that you choose and the person kind of probably more on autopilot just says yeah no i'm fine so it depends it depends your relationship with that person do you know them well enough to challenge them on that are you are you sure we ask people how are you all the time mm -hmm. all the time but it's such a pack reading 
that we go on auto response. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to go into that dark space because that's not how we've been conditioned to answer that question. So yes, it's not unusual to be like, no, no, it's fine. Everything's fine. I've worked with a leader who kindly called me on my, are you sure you're actually okay based on the pitch of my voice? So when I'm actually fine, I might sound very calm when I'm answering that question, but um, they'll tell me that when I'm not fine, I sound a lot more like, it's fine. Everything's fine. (laughs) Yeah. And they've earned the right and the trust with me to ask me again. Right. I think in trying to make that, that decision, do you ask again? Look around. Are you in a private space that is conducive to disclosure? If not, can you be? Can you take a person just for a walk, a coffee, like what's on your mind? Like, and know that not everyone is able to or willing to bring themselves to that conversation with everyone. If you think that there's someone else who they have a closer conversation with, maybe tap that person on the shoulder. Can you have a conversation with Julie? Right. I've noticed this. I tried to have a conversation. She says she's fine. I'm not sure she is. Use your networks. Yeah. But know that those people that are living with mental illness, they're the experts in their illness. If they tell you that this is the support they need, and thanks, but I really can't talk about this right now, respect it. If they say, thanks, I need to, like, I know I'm struggling, but I really need to be in the workplace right now. Can you warn me if it's getting too disruptive? listen to that advice up into the point where that person is no longer safe for themselves trust what they say when they tell you what they need the exception to that rule would be if you are working with a person who has a history of severe mental illness um, has a history of suicide attempts don't send them home don't send them home alone don't let them be alone if they're clearly struggling, even if they say they're fine or they want to be at home, make sure they're with someone. That's the one time where listening to the person, even with your full heart, doesn't do them any good. Understanding that mental illness can be and has been a life-threatening disorder. Right. I know that there are team members that have experienced that in their own lives, which is sort of another level of severity in mental illness when we're talking about suicide. Where is that line between knowing if this is like someone just needs a break today and they're too much on their plate and they can't handle this right now versus you're sending this person home alone when you should not be sending them home alone? It's a tricky line because it looks different in everyone. And so I have a history of suicide attempts. I've tried to attempt suicide twice in my life. And I guarantee that in neither case, anyone in my life would have known the difference between me on that day versus me on any other day. Hmm. Um, There are some classic signs, like warning signs, that many people exhibit, but not all. Vastly different changes in behavior, giving away cherished possessions, like a, a dramatic change in demeanor often accompanies like clear suicidal behavior because having made that tremendous decision can take a lot of weight off of a person's shoulder and mind. But if you have reasonable doubt, be safe. Make sure that at least 
a person's loved ones are with them and support them. If they're resistant to intervention in the workplace, that's okay. But know that we have a duty of care to each other, no matter whether this is truly a life-threatening suicide-related um, conversation or not, that make sure that you have every confidence and comfort that you're releasing a person into a safe situation, whatever that looks like for them. So the best way you can prepare for that conversation is to know one another on a more personal level, to know whatever they're comfortable sharing about their family situation so that you're not releasing them into the care of someone who is not safe for them to be around. Yeah, I think that's like a call out to get to know your team members too and your peers and those above you and below you or and beside you because it's almost like if there was that network there to begin with, that would have probably been a much safer space to disclose how you were feeling versus like trying to wade into a space where you don't feel like you have any trust or relationship built with somebody. For your experience and only if you're comfortable sharing, of course, is there anything that you would want team members who may have or may in the future be contemplating suicide to know that they can sort of take away from your personal lived experience and or team members who might be supporting someone in that space who may or may not realize that? So suicide is a very permanent solution to problems that seem permanent and often are not. Suicide is often misunderstood as a very selfish act. And I can tell you from personal experience that the times when I was suicidal, I wasn't thinking about me or my life. I was concerned at being a burden on those around me, on not being able to bring enough value into the world to offset the cost of me living. Gosh, Heather. <laughs> and yeah. once you've been in that place for a very long time, it's very difficult to see beyond that perspective. And even now, the echoes of those voices will come back. And what I would wish for anyone who has even gotten overwhelmed to the point where they think they can't do this anymore or it's not worth it or it's not enough enough I and that to feel that hopelessness is to trust that there is a path back to wellness it is not an easy one it is not one that you can take alone and that there are great resources in our community to help you and it's heartbreaking how hard it is, but it's not impossible. And that you're in a community who loves and supports you just as you are enough to help you back. Yeah. That you're loved more than you know. That we have more of a future than we can imagine today. And to trust that as dark as it is and as dark as it feels, and as hopeless and overwhelming as it feels, that we have the community, we have the resources to help, but we need to know, we need you to open the door. So Yeah, put the, the flag up, yeah. So the ask I'd have to all team members at ATB is to never be afraid to talk to someone who you're deeply concerned about. And that the earlier you can have these conversations, 
the better we all are because often suicide comes after a long, long time dealing with pervasive mental health challenges. Yeah, just kind of sitting in that for a minute. But thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm quite certain that will help others out there that need to hear that out of our 53 or 5,400 team members. So if you're okay with it, Louis, I think we can just sort of pause there, let our listeners soak that in a little bit, and we'll do a full debrief in part two, which our listeners can look out for. Does that work for you? That sounds great, Rachel. I think that's a great idea. All right, we'll leave it there then. Thank you for listening. For more information on Courage Stories, or if you'd like to share a story that you have, please contact Louis Martirez, L-M-A-R-T-Y-R-E-S, at atb.com, or Rachel Wade, R-W-A-D-E, at atb.com. You can also join and post your comments in the ATB number 11 G-plus community.